suddenly everyone in the world knows what DraftKings is. Everyone in the world knows what FanDuel is. Everyone in the world is asking, like, is this gambling? Is this legal? And then state AGs start sniffing around. And um, the industry was just very ripe for scandal to cause a massive problem. And that's exactly what happened. Hey, this is Jesse here, and this is the Betting Startups Podcast, where we talk with founders and CEOs of the most promising startups competing for a piece of the multi-billion dollar sports betting industry. Before we jump into episode 80, I wanted to mention that the Challenger Series Summit is coming to Las Vegas this October before G2E. Co-hosted by GeoComply and City. the Challenger Series Summit is a unique networking opportunity to learn from US iGaming founders and entrepreneurs who will be sharing the hacks, tips, and tricks to achieve high growth. I was lucky enough to attend the last edition of the series earlier this year in New York and can confirm that this is a must-attend event for industry founders and senior executives alike. RSVP to attend the Las Vegas Summit on October 8th before G2E kicks off, which you can do by visiting www.geocomply.com. All right, we are back on the Betting Startups Podcast. And for this one, we welcome back a former guest of the pod who's stepping up into my seat as guest host for this one. Cooper is here from SoBet. And Cooper, it's been a while since you were on the pod. So I'd love to start with a quick update about everything happening in your world with SoBet. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Jesse. And uh, thanks for letting me do the podcast with Cal. Obviously, had a great time doing it. I think he did it as well. Um, just an update on our end. We just wrapped up uh, with the Texas sports program out of Indy. We had a great summer up there. Um, we're fortunate enough to have the time and resources to move the entire team there. Spent 60 days as a team up in Indy, which is the perfect city to, to grind in before football season. Not not too much to do up there, but big shout out to Jordan, Andrew, the team. Uh, they put on an amazing, amazing program. They have amazing partners around the program. I really think it, it gave us a ton of momentum before football season, allowed us to build a ton. So, but yeah, we've grown a ton in the past year. Um, and, and we're just looking to accelerate things, put our foot on the gas during football season. Uh, we actually just launched the mobile app uh, two weeks ago. So all the growth that we've done the past year has been on our web-based MVP. So pretty excited to see, see the numbers keep ticking up. Awesome. Well, as you mentioned for this episode, you talked to Cal Spears, who's an industry veteran and repeat founder with multiple exits under his belt. Wondering if you can tee this one up and give folks listening a quick preview of what uh, they're about to hear in your conversation with Cal. Yeah, so we're a national-based company and um, work with a lot of influencers. Cal, obviously, founder of Roto Grinders, um, works with a lot of personalities in the space as well. So that's actually how we got to know each other. He's They're based in Nashville. We're based in Nashville. Um, they've done some work with some of the influencers we've done work with, and eventually I got introduced to him um, and have got to know him a little bit over the past couple months here. Um, we were out to dinner one night, and he just kind of got talking about... Um, his company before Roto Grinders, which was uh, born out of the the online poker world. And we kind of came to this realization, me knowing nothing about online poker, pretty much because I was 10, 11, 12 years old when he was starting to build that company. <laughs> but um, he started to kind of educate me almost on this whole scene, which Daily Fantasy was born after. Um, and I, I know the daily fantasy space pretty well. And I, I tend to look back and try to find lessons learned from companies. And I'm just really curious when it comes to um, how companies build themselves, especially in our space. And so I, I've known that, that story of the daily fantasy giants pretty well. But I, I really hadn't known all that came before it before I started talking to Cal. 
And and so I, when we were talking at dinner, it, it just kind of flowed into this story. Um, and ultimately, Roto Grinders was born from the online poker world and his experience in that world. And and by the time he stopped talking, I was like, we got to do a podcast because that was phenomenal. <laughs> you have so many insights that need to be out there um, and need to be public. And there's a lot of young founders in the space and young companies that are trying to grow that I think a benefit from it, um, including myself. So so that's where that's where the uh, background on the pod came. And, and, you know, I reached out to you and, and obviously told you you were pumped about it. And I think we recorded a pretty good episode. Yeah, I have to agree. As a listener, it was an awesome one to listen to. And to your point, Cooper, you know, a lot of uh, interesting history there for maybe some younger founders in the space. So fantastic episode. Great job hosting it. Thank you for setting that up. And let's get into it with Cal from Roto Grinders. Hey, we are here, guest hosts, betting startups podcast. Big shout out to Jesse for this one. We got a great episode. We got Cal Spears, founder of Rainy Grinder, industry vet. Cal, what's up? How you doing? Hey, man, I'm I'm doing great. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to come on here. Yeah, so yeah, so basically, what happened is we we went out to dinner the other night and. Uh, I was kind of just telling my backstory, you know, which mo- most of my peers in the industry, they know this story, but I, you know, I kind of realized at the time you were like in high school or middle school for a lot of this. So yeah, it just made me realize there's quite a few people that are getting their career started in sports betting right now that, um, you know, just haven't heard a lot of the story of how online gambling as a whole came together in the U.S. So I was excited to come on it, but talk about it with you. Yeah, definitely, definitely uh, awesome hearing you kind of go. Th- I mean, it just kind of flowed with the conversation that we were having at dinner. And uh, we ended up realizing like, hey, there's this massive story packed in here. Um, but it all started in Nashville. And I think Nashville is an important part of this story because right now the city is absolutely exploding. Um, I yeah. feel like sports and entertainment, sports betting is really at the core of of some things that are going on there. And obviously, you know, you have experience with that with Roto Grinders and went to Vanderbilt. But uh, just a quick background on you. Um, again, Cal and I just met. We haven't we haven't really gotten to know each other too much past uh, the sports betting space and, and talking about some bets. But um, how did you end up in Nashville? Where did you originally grow up? And 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 kind of take us through you going to Vandy yeah. and getting into the scene. Yeah, sure. So I, I grew up in Madisonville, Kentucky, which is a small town, like nineteen thousand people, about two hours northwest of, of Nashville. And uh, a family is a lot of coal miners in the family. My dad's coal miner. My brother's a coal miner. Everyone loves wow. UK basketball. Yeah, <laughs> Kentucky basketball is just like the only sport that matters. So I kind of just grew up like, you know, wanting wanting to go to college and, and just assuming I would go to UK. But like in, in high school, I was on the quiz bowl team and we would come down to Nashville and Vanderbilt would host these big tournaments. And I just kind of fell in love with the campus. It's time to apply to colleges. I apply on a whim, you know, just knowing that it was uh, wildly expensive and that I would probably not be able to make it here, but applied anyways. So when I got accepted, it also came with this like shockingly uh, lucrative financial aid package. Like my dad, my dad, a coal miner, which, you know, makes pretty good money for Madisonville, Kentucky, but uh, my mom and dad were divorced. So I lived with my mom and I had you know, basically a, a zero for, for income on my financial aid package. So, you know, I got very lucky on that and it, and it maxed out and I was getting like 20K a year in grants. 
and then I, you know, I took some loans, did work study, and I got some local scholarships too. So yeah, somehow I was able to put it all together and afford to, to move to Nashville in 2009 to start undergrad in Mandy. Amazing. Incredible, incredible opportunity. Vanderbilt, obviously key part of the city, great school, key part of the SEC. And for you, a key part of your entry into the gambling world. Um, how did how did you originally get into gambling? And I, I know you talked about kind of the poker scene at Vandy while you were there and, and the growth of that scene. Talk to us a little bit about yeah. that and and how that kind of steamrolled this whole journey for the rest of your life. Yeah. So, I mean, it was like just always around gambling. It's just like second nature to me. I grew up near Ellis Park in uh, Henderson, Kentucky. So, you know, we'd go, go to the horse races with my dad. Started making bets to him when I'm like 13. So. You know, always lifelong gambler, liked playing like five card draw and triple E, like various forms of poker growing up, but had no idea what Texas, yeah, but I had no idea what Texas Hold'em was until whole cards and online poker slowly started uh, becoming a thing. And it was, it was really like very late in college and right after college when Chris Moneymaker won the World Series in like the biggest simulation moment you could, a Hollywood story writer couldn't write that a guy named Moneymaker an online poker satellite for like $80 goes on and, and wins the World Series of Poker on the very first year that the World Series of Poker had whole card cams and decided to treat it like a reality TV show. So like if you watch the World Series of Poker before, it's like you don't know what the cards and guys have. They're just like sitting at a table smoking cigarettes and it's it's just hard to follow. But yeah, that, that year Moneymaker won. It was perfect storybook and it got every red-blooded American wanting to play online poker. Still, you know, we're gra- I've graduated Vanderbilt in May of uh, 2003, right, right around the time all of this is happening. And just start playing poker like every night, whether it's a, a tournament with your buddies, like a 10-person tournament at the house or, you know, play, playing online. And, you know, this was 20 years ago, but it was like peak worldwide web. Like imagine worldwide liquidity for a game that needs that liquidity. Like it, this is something you can't even fathom happening today where there's just, you know, a, a dozen websites offering tournaments every night, log in whenever you want, play a ring game or play a set and go or play a tournament with thousands of people in it. So yeah, t- 2003, 2004, 2005 was uh, just like a wild time of growth for poker, fueled by moneymaker, fueled by online poker. Yeah, and, and I uh, think... And I think to your point, like Poker Stars was a big part of that, right? That that was originally, and, and for those listening who don't know this explicitly, I didn't know this before this whole conversation. Of course, I'd heard the name, but I didn't know the whole backstory. Chris Moneymaker was actually an accountant who won, uh, he won a seat at the main event in, in 2003, which is what Cal's alluding to, through an $86 satellite tournament hosted by yeah. Poker Stars um, via an online poker room. So that's what kind of brought, and, and to your point, the liquidity, the ultimate liquidity being the internet, um, that's what kind of brought poker to the limelight at this time. And, and obviously like fueled your interests at school, um, a lot of your peers' interests, and then ultimately led to you guys starting Pocket Fives. And and uh, yeah. can you can you tell us about that kind of, that kind of origination yeah, so story? It became, it became a, like a, a fascination with us playing online poker, specifically tournaments, uh, you know, all of us fresh out of college will play poker well into the night. And we started noticing that it's some of these poker tables, online poker tables. Uh, when you're looking in the tournament lobby, you could see the viewer counts for each table. 
So most poker tables have zero viewers. You know, why would someone set an online poker site and watch someone else play poker? But then randomly you'd see some poker tables would have dozens or maybe even a hundred. It's like that piqued the curiosity of me and Adam Small, who was my, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, like Adam Small, who was my, my buddy from college and roommate at the time. He and I would just play poker together all the time. And um, we we were we had to figure out why there was this interest in certain players. So you go into that table, add yourself to the viewer list, and you see that there's just people chatting with a guy at that table, asking him questions about poker. So they identified that, like, this guy is a good poker player. You know, his, his screen name is completely anonymous. Like the, the first name that comes to mind is Poker Ho. He was a guy that played ultimate bet tournaments uh, and owned a sports bar in Milwaukee back in the day. But um, again, we remember just going into Poker Ho's table and he was winning poker tournaments. He was chatting with people and he was developing a following. Um, at the time I worked at Rivals.com, which was braced out of, of Brentwood here in, here in Nashville. And that company would rank high school sports athletes. So they would say, this is a five-star recruit. Um, he is the number one overall five-star recruit. I remember the year that I started there, Adrian Peterson was the uh, number one five-star recruit. So Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, they, yeah like they, were, they were just super subjectively ranking this thing that was really hard to rank, but there was a ton of interest in it. Like People that are diehard college football fans wants to know who are the big recruits rising out of college football. And Shannon Terry's site, Rivals.com, this perfectly built community and rankings around that. So, you know, we're like addicted to poker. We're having a great time with it. We're starting to see that there's this exact same thing happening. It's not just people playing, like there's interest in the celebrity players. So I invited my, another poker buddy who was a developer, Riley Bryant. I invited him out to Alpine Bagel for lunch and asked him if he wanted to build a poker site with me and Adam, where we subjectively ranked online poker players and, and built community around it, just like what Rivals.com did for high school athletes. And uh, he immediately said, yes, he was all aboard. So, yeah, that was uh, late 2004 when we all got together to do it. And by January 2005, we had, had the site ready. The rankings version one was ready and we launched, launched Pocket 5's January 05. Incredible. And what were, what were kind of the early days of pocket fives? Like what, what initially was kind of like your business model, your plan, your plan for monetizing, if you had any, or how did that kind of formulate as, as you guys went along? I remember there was, there were other poker communities back then. The biggest one being two plus two rec poker was a, was one, a couple others. I can't even think of the name of them, but I know one of them had an ad sheet on their website where you could tell, like, if you want to have a banner ad here, it costs $500 a month. So I was kind of doing projections originally around uh, selling ad space. And I had, I didn't know what an affiliate industry was. I uh, didn't, didn't have any you know, experience with performance marketing, uh, but just as we got closer to launch and started reaching out to people in the industry, building connections, it became very apparent that an, an affiliate model where you sign up someone to a poker site for either a, a cost per acquisition, like a one-time bounty or a rev share, you know, sometimes back then it was just like an indefinite rev share. It lasted until they cut it off. So like it, it became like, as we got closer to launch, it became obvious that the affiliate rev share model was the way to go. So, you know, we launched this site, 
and it attracted uh, the guys that we ranked highly. So they, these guys, you know, I'd say like not everyone, some of them don't like the attention, but like one out of every two, one out of every three, see it as something they enjoy. They enjoy the celebrity or they see it as an opportunity to build a personal brand and a personal platform. And then they'll hop, in board, hop on board, start writing articles, participate in the forums. And then that attracts the aspirational player. It attracts like the, the, the people that want to be them, that want to learn from them, to become the next Poker Hill. And, you know, you have like this really cool, genuine community, but it's, you know, we kind of boxed into it. It's also a community of very high value rev share players. So like we, we were monetizing right out of the gates, like more than we could have ever, ever believed. Very interesting. And kind of, I mean, I would say a lot of similarities to the ecosystem that's developed today in the betting world and maybe even, you know, kind of a, a prelude to where the, the industry is going. But take us yeah. through, I know, you know, you guys kind of developed the site and grew it up until 2007, 2008. Um, but take us through kind of that transition, growing the site and then the formulation of the UIGEA, Black Friday. <laughs> Um, your eventual sale and, and kind of exiting the business. Yeah. yeah pocket, I mean, online poker, pocket fives, it was all just a rocket ship from 2005 to 2006. I mean, you, you know, you turn on ESPN or the world poker tour to watch the, whatever the weekly poker tournament was, and you would just get bombarded with ads. It would be a party poker ad followed by a poker stars ad followed by an ultimate bet ad. You know, everything just like, you know, ESPN's advertising these sites. It just seems completely on the up and up. Uh, but it's just, you know, it, it just got so big that regulators started to take notice that uh, you know, none of this money was being taxed. And, uh, you know, where, where was it even sure who's behind it? You know, it turns out like there's there's sites like Poker Stars who, you know, ran incredible businesses. And then there's sites like Full Tilt that ran Ponzi mm-hmm. schemes. But on the outside, looking in uh, to a, a user, they both just look like great sites with a lot of liquidity and a great product. So it was, it was very ripe for regulation. And um, there had been like a few different attempts to pass something like the UIGEA with, with no success. But in, in 2006, I guess the drumbeat had gotten steady enough that uh, Bill Frist, Senate Majority Leader at the time, he took, uh, he, he attached this like 11th hour, he attached this UIGA as a writer to something called the Safe Port Act. You know, and a lot of people didn't even read the writer. You, you, had, you basically had to vote yet for safe ports. Uh, so that got passed with almost a unanimous vote. And um, all of a sudden there was U.S. federal government involvement in online gambling. Some of these sites in served the U.S., like Party Poker was, I don't know if it was, I think it was even publicly traded on the London Stock Exchange. So as soon as that action happened, a lot of the legit providers like pulled out overnight. So that was a, that was a big hit to, to just like overall liquidity. Uh, that was a big hit to to the revenue pocket fives. So it was, it was, it was, it was a nerve wracking time because, you know, we'd gone up so so fast and, you know, just just as quickly, like it feels like the, yeah, it feels like taking down doors. Yeah, but I was just, you know, I, I, I was just so uncomfortable owning a business at that time. Oh, not only, you know, not only were, were their ads constantly, it was so easy to get your money onto these sites. All you had to do was connect your PayPal or your bank account or whatever to this offshore bank called NetTeller. And NetTeller would just, you know, you could deposit anywhere you wanted to easily, withdraw anytime you wanted to. And then that site, uh, got the, a couple of the guys that founded that site got arrested in the Bahamas. Like stuff started getting really, that nerve wracking for me, 
you couldn't start a business site on NetTeller. So I had like, I had my personal name attached to the business's account. So I was bringing in money to the U.S. through my personal name that was attached to the business. I was just, I just wanted to get out. I feel like so, sketchy shit's always happening in the Bahamas. Yeah. 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 There's sure. always the Bahamas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, quite a, yeah, quite a few of those islands up there. Yes. Yeah. Uh, not, yeah. So and stuff gets sketchier and sketchier. I, I wanted to get out. So I ended up going to the ICE conference in London. This would have been January of 07. This is a big affiliate conference that happens every January in London and just took, took all day meetings with different companies uh, to, to sell the site. And, uh, Terrible time to sell a website, you know, so you're selling at the absolute low. They've got like some low ball offers, sometimes no interest at all. But then the very last meeting we took that day was with a, a guy named Mike Jackness, who ran a site called Poker Source Online out of Costa Rica. And he, his main business model was sending poker chips in the mail to anyone that would sign up to a website using his links. So he'd get like the 150 $200, $300 CPA and use that to afford shipping poker chips. So um, he had decided to move to Costa Rica and, you know, he's just going to keep operating. He wanted to buy pocket fives on a, on a note, like a mortgage basically. So he, and he wanted us to, me and Adam, he wanted me, Adam and Riley to all move to Costa Rica. Riley was a hard no. Like he had already taken a job, like teaching Latin <laughs> in high, at a high school here. But Adam and I moved to Costa Rica like, and we did the deal. We had a, a, a note payment, a minimum monthly payment of $40,000. So we had this passive income coming in. We moved to Costa Rica on three month contracts, just consulting agreements to help transition the company. And uh, we liked it a lot. Like I ended up staying 18 months and helping them do some other wow. projects. But then Adam ended up staying five years. He became like a principal in that company. He ended up being CEO of that company at one point. And he married a Costa Rican woman and uh, has three kids with her and they would be live in Florida now. So wow. yeah, Costa Rica became a big part of, of our lives. And it's, it's not That's quite incredible. as, you know, not quite as sketchy as, as the Bahamas, but there was still like, by the time we moved down and there was still a lot of sports books, U.S. facing sports books operating in Costa Rica. Yeah. I feel like they're probably some are to some degree. But, but I mean, incredible. So you guys live in Costa Rica, you're late twenties, living it up running basically an online poker company, living your life. Obviously at this time, 2010, 2011, DFS starts to come to the forefront. So how, how did that transition happen with you and Adam? And how did the eventual idea of Roto Grinders develop and take yeah. us through that kind of transition? Sure. Yeah. So, so the UIGEA, very complex law, like it, it made a, had a lot of loopholes. One of the loopholes they put in it was uh, to protect fantasy sports, which was probably or, or definitely a season long fantasy sports carve out, but it was just w worded too vaguely. Anytime something like that happens, you're going to find people to, to drive a semi through the loophole. And that's exactly what happened. And uh, so course, people took the still are. Sports still carve out. Yeah. <laughs> fantasy sports carve outs uh, ends up becoming a highly transactional business where you're buying in for a $10 game and the site's taking a dollar every time. I remember the first time I saw it was a site called Instant Fantasy Sports when I was in Costa Rica in 2008. Someone sent me a link to it because a, a poker player named Chris Fargis, uh, who actually like worked at DraftKings and now he works at Fanatics, but he had started a, the first DFS site I ever saw and a bunch of other poker players invested in it. So that, that piqued my interest and then Roto 
world was working with a company called Snapdraft. So like when I was looking at player news for my season long leagues on Roto World, there was a little ad on the sidebar to play two man, three man, five man contests on Snapdraft. A company called Fantasy Sports Live had the most liquidity then. But again, it was all like small contests. So it didn't really strike me as that sexy as either a player or as a, or as an entrepreneur, but definitely something that we kept tabs on. Like, so like late, late 2008, I'd been in Costa Rica for 18 months and I, I knew that I was, couldn't live. Like I, it was very, very fun to be a single 27 year old there for, for a year. <laughs> like that, that was enough. That was enough for me. I need to get back to the States and, and, and get started on whatever I was doing next. And got back with Riley. Uh, yeah, yeah, got back with Riley, PTO of of Packet Fives when I moved back. And uh, we were we wanted to work in fantasy sports, and we threw a bunch of stuff at the wall. Like a lot, no, nothing really stuck. It's just very, very hard to monetize season long fantasy. But while all this is happening, while we're failing with season long fantasy sites, daily fantasy just keeps growing. They start offering tournaments. A lot. Of this is led by Fanduel. And a couple other sites that I got, it's been so long now, I've even forgot the names, but you know, now it's like for a $10 entry, you're playing against a thousand people and there's real money to win. So that's what got Riley and I excited about it. And we had all this experience with pocket fives. We built up some credibility through doing the rankings on pocket fives. So I just was able to, you know, just like cold call or cold reach out through email to these sites and say like, Hey, we did pocketfives.com. We'd like to do the same things. This is ranking online tournament players for poker. We'd like to do the same thing with, with your sport. And you know, pretty much 100% of the sites just gave us like an XML feed of their, of their uh, tournament data because they were excited. They wanted to wow. be in this industry and they thought that we yeah. could help build community around. And I mean, it just instantly, and just like with Pocket Fives, it wasn't as big of a rut as Pocket Fives because this was a very budding industry, whereas poker was already going. But, but that same effect happened of, you know, people that loved playing this game were, were doing well with it and wanted to, you know, be, be around others, learn from others. So like, we got that exact type of crowd on board early. Uh, this was, we launched in July of 2010 for Rotogrinders, super early. We hadn't even, FanDuel did their first live final in December of 2010. So it was, you know, at the very beginning of, of tournament DFS, but it was, it's a fun game. And there's big money to be one up top, and there's a lot of skill involved and a lot of thought involved. And, you know, people wanted to join a community of like-minded players and try to figure out how to make the money. Yeah, absolutely. And ultimately, I, I have a couple questions based on that. One, who are the top players yeah. that you remember? Is there anybody in the industry now that, that, that is kind of like doing something else or has a name and a face to them and is, was a top daily yeah. fantasy player back then? Yeah, so like one of the very first guys, in it, and I don't remember exactly where he was ranked where he came out, but his, his name was Head Chopper, and he still works for Roto Grinders like to this day. Like he's still wow. just as good now as he was then. Uh, he's won million dollar top prizes a couple of times, so he's built like an incredible career out of this. But I think he's just been like one of the top players since the industry even existed. So he, he he's he's the guy that comes to mind for longevity. Uh, then there's been a lot of guys who like take the massive climb, but then fall off just as quick. A guy named a player named Condia was the highest volume player on FanDuel for years, and then you know, Max, a player named Max Dollar, ended up picking him off. You know, Condia was the highest volume player, but he wasn't the best. So when Max Dollar was able to play at his bankroll level, like he was able to just slowly. Well, kind of quickly in some sports, drain Condia. So Condia went from wow. zero to you know 
hero to zero pretty fast. And then, you know, years later, the same things ends up happening to Max Dollary. Like just slowly, like people compound their edges and, and, and find a way to beat the top players. And then Osimo had like the longest and most impressive run. But, uh, you know, even, even he lost the top spot last year. And were these guys, and, and probably some of these characters were multiple people, but were they all completely anonymous or did people kind of know who they were? Yeah, Condia stayed pretty anonymous, uh, but Max Dollary stayed pretty anonymous. And then Awesome, where he, he built a website like around his, his personal brand. So it always depends. Like I, I say like one out of three, one out of two of the guys on that rankings list you know, want to be involved in the community, whether it's just to have community or to build their own brand and platform. So some of them completely anonymous. Some of them, you know, some of them will win five seats to a live final in Vegas and just not go. There's been guys that have won a million dollar top prize at a live final that, you know, just didn't even like phone in to say congrats, to say thank you at the wow. end of it. So you never, yeah, you never know. Yeah, it's insane. I mean, my mind's just going right now. Like, I just see so many parallels to today's world and, and kind of the way the sports betting world is evolving. And especially with some things that we're doing here at SoBet, not to, not to give myself a plug, but it, it does just give me a lot of, a lot of thoughts about the parallels. But take us through uh, kind of the, the culmination of Roto Grinders, the growth of the company. Was the business model kind of the same as before, the, the affiliate marketing exactly. strategy? And ultimately, like, what was well, your yeah. goal with that? And, and, and what did you guys end up uh, getting out of it? Yeah, that, so we use the exact same model, except this time going in. You know, I, I didn't know what affiliate marketing was when we started working on Pocket Five. This time going in, we, we based everything around Jazz, around Red Tear. So we had a we had a premium product from day one, but you couldn't actually buy it. You could only get access to it if you signed up through our links. So the idea there wasn't just like asking people, hey, like if you if you want to sign up for FanDuel, it would be awesome if you saw my link. Uh, you know, and that's just hoping that they do that as a favor. But instead, like, we were giving people really good incentives to click through our links. And it's a you know it's a peer to peer game where the winners produce the most revenue. It's not the opposite of sports betting. So if you can yeah. sign up good players and give them content that makes them even better players, they're very high value ref share players. So that was a model going in and it, it was working really well when, okay, so 2011 Black Friday hits and um, all of a sudden Riley and I are like a year into, into working on Roto Grinders. We're getting our passive income still from that note for pocket fines. Black Friday hits and um, the Costa Rican company immediately defaults on the note. So we, not only do we not have the passive income, we also own pocket fives again. So actually pocketfives.com was just dropped in our lap because that was oh, collateral on the loan. So like, we're scrambling to try to figure that out. But luckily, like th that rev share model was working and we were already making enough money on, on FanDuel and, and Draft Street was doing well. Sites like that, that we had money coming in from Roto Grinders as, as early as 2000, mid-2011. And in late 2011, I was taking weekly calls. People, people were calling nonstop about their site launching. Everybody was underfunded. No one understood tech. It was all just like one after the other of these people that shouldn't have been in this business getting into it and wanting to work with Roto Grinders. But one of those calls is from a guy named Jason Robin, and like he immediately stood out. He worked at Nista Print with a couple co-founders, Matt Kalish, Paul Lieberman. Uh, they did customer acquisition for Nista Print. Paul Lieberman was a, was a tech guy there. So they had all the pieces. They had a lot of backing from Boston, VC. So uh, like immediately, like, okay, like now, I, 
a serious player. I was excited about that one. And uh, I could tell Jason was just relentless. But he was launching with a super aggressive uh, guaranteed tournament strategy. So you you open up the DraftKings lobby, even though they don't have any players yet, you know, they're having like six-figure tournaments. So the idea is that if you build it and guarantee it, they will come. Like nobody's going to let that free money go to wait. If it's a million-dollar prize pool and you don't get a million-dollar worth of entries, they're literally making it a, po- a positive expected value game for everyone that signs up. And that's how DraftKings was for its first year. And um, people would, I don't know, I think there was a lot of tournaments that overlooked 20%, like $200,000. If it's a million dollar tournament, they're just giving 200K away to players. So players race to that site, but um, no, they, they really needed our community to launch with that aggressive strategy. So I remember Jason, like multiple calls, just trying to do like a $10 cost per acquisition and um, just like holding out, holding out. It's like, no, we want rev share. I can't do rev share. Well, then we can't, we can't do a deal. We can't promote your launch. And then um, he finally agreed to do ref share, but like under, under the stipulation that, it, that there was no contractually obligated payments. So basically we had a, a rev share deal. If I wanted to do it as a rev share deal with, with nothing on paper and um, decided to take that leap of faith. And it was, it was like the best financial decision I've ever made. They came out of the gate so aggressive. We signed up like everyone that was playing DFS at the time, like we were able to sign them up to DraftKings. So that just like overnight, like left us to a, to a new level of revenue. For, for Roto-Grinders, they, they just kept growing from there. And how did that deal end? Did he just one day, was he like, oh, we're well, giving you yeah. so much money, we have to stop. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a whole story. That's the next part of the story of, of DFS. <laughs> That's when, you know, we, we had the rug pulled out from under us by the federal government and the UIGA in 2006. This time we got the rug pulled out from under us by a variety of, of states, AGs, in 2015. So FanDuel and DraftKings uh, end up raising money and billion, like they're unicorns, 2013, 2000, no, it's 2014, 2015, they're unicorns. They're raising a billion dollar valuation. They're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on ads. So just like when you used to see party poker every time you'd watch the WPT, now opening weekend NFL 2015, it's just DraftKings ad, relentless DraftKings ad, relentless FanDuel ads. And the ads aren't even that good. You know, it's like a palpable, like, like so you can sense that people that don't play on the sites are like getting annoyed by the amount of the ads that they're seeing. And uh, the level, so like you either love them or hate them because they advertise too much. Suddenly everyone in the world knows what DraftKings is. Everyone in the world knows what FanDuel is. Everyone in the world is asking like, is this gambling? Is this legal? And then state AGs start sniffing around. And um, the industry was just very ripe for scandal to cause a massive problem. And that's exactly what happened in 2015 football season. It was like week two or three, a guy that works for DraftKings named Ethan Haskell, who's actually a former Roto Grinders employee. He had moved down here to Nashville to work with us, then wanted to move back home. So he worked with DraftKings when he got back home. He was like the head, one of their like heads of content at the time. And he would toast an ownership report. Like this is, we have, if a player is still locked, then you don't know how many people own that player. So he would post an owner, he would post a report and says, okay, this guy's game just started. He's owned at 20%. This guy plays in the afternoon. We don't know his ownership yet. So that, that would still be locked in the content, except it wasn't. Except he accidentally posted something that showed that he had access to both public and not public information. 
So if Tom Brady was playing in the night game, all you saw was a lock button where his ownership should be. You didn't know if he was on 5% or 30%. And that matters when you're trying to build yep. a portfolio of players against 100,000 other people. It's all about ownership. So when it became clear that like, wait a minute, not only does Ethan have this data, he's currently playing on the competitor site, FanDuel. And he won, I think he won like $300,000 at a tournament. And no, they like in crazy circumstance, like the same the same day that he accidentally leaked that data, the, 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 he also won like $300,000 on FanDuel. Just so, and the, the, the worst, the worst secret of all. <laughs> um, it's unbelievable. And then like two days later, and this is all, this is all breaking on Roto. It's like people are discussing it on Roto Grinder. Total, you know, total just cluster. And then like two days later, I'm watching ESPN and uh, what's the guy's Bob Lay? Is that the ESPN? Bob Lay. Yeah, Bob Lay, like he's, it's it's a screenshot of the Roto Grinders forums on ESPN. And he's talking about this thing, which by that point had become called Ethan Gate. Uh, so like Ethan Gates, you know, almost, almost brings down the industry. So the, the New York AG, his name is Schneiderman, Eric Schneiderman. Uh, he filed suits against Fandle and DraftKings both in late 2015. And that was pretty much the point where the capital markets just completely seized up. Like these sites were far, far from profitable. They're just riding yeah. the gross train, dependent 100% on VC funding. So as soon as that, that state AG action came in, uh, the, the capital markets eased up. And now all of a sudden, going into 2016, uh, the industry's in a fight with Eric Schneiderman and, and a dozen other state AGs, and, and it's a fight for survival. So that's around that's the t- t- like we we actually kept the rev shared nils for a while after that, but there just became a time when you know they the sites are literally about to die. You know, this is to the point where like, Fanduel had Fanduel had to sell. Fanduel had to sell their company, and DraftKings nearly got there too. They tried to merge together, but uh, the feds denied that. It was a very, very <laughs> just very stressful time. Imagine and, uh, what the industry would look like if that would happen. But I mean, so that essentially killed yeah. your affiliate marketing and you guys had to yeah. find a new way to monetize. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We, we got, and we, like, we got subpoenaed for, from Steiderman. So like I'm up in his office with lawyers talking to some of his guys about like the scandal getting, you know, just getting the third degree about, are any of these employees, have you heard any stories of employees cheating? There's, yeah, there's. I don't know, at least five other five other states where where there's uh, this type of problem, and then the and then the industry just goes full on uh, lobbying. They spend yeah, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars on lobbying efforts. So all this money that was going to go to ads is now going to to lobbying. And uh, you know, luckily, luckily it, it works. Like New York was the real, those are real uh, important one. And Schneiderman ended up dropping his suit when the New York legislature passed the DFS bill. So it ended up becoming legal in New York, but the, the industry wasn't going to die and they were going to continue to produce revenue, but there wasn't any more big capital funding, any, any more rev share. So like, that's the point. Okay, mid, mid-2016, I would say, where we had to full-on switch from being a performance marketing business to subscription business. And, and we, had never, we, we had never been that. Yeah, we had the subscription product already, but it was mainly to, to assign people up to rev share accounts. But um, at that point, we had to take a take a big leap of faith. And uh, again, though, like it was, we we hired really quality guys, and it worked out. And I think um, 
you know, obviously we, we know what happens next. The lobbying turns into 2018, PASPA gets repealed, sports betting gets legalized, and that, that paves the way for DraftKings yeah. to go public, obviously. Well, I, would say, but, I would say, like, it wasn't, like, maybe not the lobbying as much. Like, the lobbying definitely made senators, like, a lot more aware of sports betting, but I think a lot of it is the money being spent by DraftKings and FanDuel. They were raising yeah. money. They were spending it on ads, but they were also, like, making partnerships with the league. Now all of a sudden, you know, now all of a sudden, NFL, NBA, you're seeing money coming in from fantasy sports, and that's opening their eyes, and maybe a little more of this if we allow sports betting. So I think it's a combination of of the lobbying, but it was like this whole this whole sports betting pass through repeal was was very much driven by you know the efforts of of FanDuel and DraftKings. Of course. Did you guys ever consider pivoting Roto Grinders into more of a sports betting focused site or, or was DFS kind of always at your forefront? D- DFS always at the forefront, but we, we did dabble with some other uh, sports betting focused sites. But um, this is also around the time when we started looking for partners for an exit. Yep. And and so kind of get into that. I, I think, you know, the the better part of this audience probably knows that story, but kind of talk us through that process, the sale of the company. And uh, ultimately, I, I think that leads us kind of to today and, and where you are yeah. today. Yeah. So, yeah. So like after near death in 2015, 2016, but then the subscription model, you know, working and, and continuing to grow, like as we raise prices, it doesn't affect, it doesn't affect the demand. So like we have a, we have a good business, but we're just very nervous about getting the rug pulled again somehow. So like when the when PASPA is repealed, all of a sudden there's another big rut of interest in the industry. And we, we had a, we had hired an investment bank and we, we'd met with dozens of companies, but uh, Better Collective was like by far the most attractive suitor. And they were open to what we wanted to do, which was take two bites of the apple. They wanted to sell 60% of the company at an abundant multiple at, at that time, and then still own 40%. So like, they actually just bought into our LLC. We still owned 40% of it. So we didn't really just have like this typical kind of earnout you hear about that's it's like half-ass. Like this was a full-on heavily incentivized earnout uh, that actually had multipliers from other things going on in the better collective business. So um, yeah, we ended up, we, we liked that deal and we, we sold to better collective kind of riding the back of that wave of momentum in sports betting. And that, that, that was, uh, I think May of 2019 that we, that we sold 60%. So better collective was memorial was majority owners. And, uh, you know, they were making lots of trips to Nashville. I was taking lots of trips yeah. to Copenhagen. Uh, and we were just had like, you know, integration was going great. And then all of a sudden there's a worldwide pandemic and it's not, you know, what's, what's their next big SEO meeting now? It's, oh, we have, once again, we have no revenue. There's no sports leagues. We can't get yeah. charging subscriptions. Can't so even like right in the middle, yeah, like right in the middle of our earnout period. I will say earnout, earnout, the earnout was really all based on the year, uh, 2021 so luckily everything had recovered by then but like right in the middle of trying to get everything integrated within with a company in copenhagen and really a company that had 13 offices around the world and the global pandemic hits and and everything's a disaster again (laughs) yeah what a time i mean obviously a huge win for you um a huge win for riley the team at rotor grinders um you know i i met dan who still works in the office great team you guys still have over there based in nashville um kind of What's Rotary Grinders look like today? How how are you involved? And then and then where do you see yourself kind of getting back into the industry now that um, that 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 phase of of your life is behind you? Yeah, I mean, so like daily fantasy sports is flat 
but I would say like still growing more than more than anything. Like a lot of people thought DFS would just die when sports betting became legal. Well, one, it's it's legal in a lot more states, but two, it's just fun. Like to you know to put, play a ten dollar buy in turn twenty dollar buy in tournament and have a chance to win a million dollars. Like it's it's fun. It's a game that's gonna be here to stay. Dan Bach moved from Florida to Nashville to take to take my spot. Uh, we sold the remaining forty percent to Better Collective. Me, like Riley and Cameron McMillan, sold the remaining forty percent to them. And, uh, let's see, that would have been, I guess, I guess like nineteen months ago because I had a sixteen month non compete. Gotcha. So I'm sorry, I had an eighteen month non compete, and uh, I'm just coming off of that non compete, and uh, I've been uh, yeah, just trying to slowly figuring out what I want to get into next. It's definitely going to be something in sports betting online casino world but yeah it's it's time to figure that out incredible and it feels like you're getting back into the industry at a time where some of these regulation issues might be bubbling up yet again so you know you've had you've had experience navigating that twice now and it, it might be a third time uh more than yeah, yeah whatever it is i'm sure it's going to be fun and great and grow and then something terrible's happening so we're going to have to adjust to that on the fly and then it'll be great again but yeah, I'm used, I'm used to it at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this has been awesome. I think one question I have, I know that that story is incredible and, and just, you know, super insightful for me. We, we didn't even get into a lot of those details that you just got into. So, I mean, just amazing from my perspective. But um, one question I have just as a young founder in the space, and I know there's a lot of, Jesse does a great job distributing this um, to other young founders, but, but what would you say to somebody getting into the space, starting a company, who doesn't have the the kind of background that you have and the knowledge of, of how everything's evolved over time. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's it's so heavily regulated now that you're at a, a disadvantage if you are underfunded. That's one of the things that was lucky about the timing when we got in with poker marketing, with DFS marketing. Like these were just kind of just, <laughs> there, there wasn't any, any licenses you had to get. There wasn't yep. any uh, paperwork with state offices. Like when we were getting lectins for sports betting with, with roto grinders, like it's an, it's a pretty intense process, but it's worth it. Like I would say, don't, don't take it for granted. Like always, always keep performance marketing, affiliate marketing as, as something that you're actively working on, because that's the, the upside there is, is absolutely enormous, especially if we get revenue share opportunities, which in some states exists already. Yeah, totally. And, you know, with three of the biggest states in the country still on the board, those those opportunities are going to exist for the next five to 10 years here. So um, great, great advice. Um, I know it's something that we, we've we got into here at SoBet um, and have learned a lot about over the past few years. But um, Cal, thanks so much. Jesse, thanks so much for having us. I know this has gone a little long, but this has been awesome. I, I know a lot of people will enjoy this. And uh, yeah, thanks for your time. I'll see you when I get back down to Nashville. Yeah, thanks so much, Cooper.